And so the sermon is this morning entitled Spiritual Warfare. And so we will look this morning and think on Paul's turn as he closes out his letter and he calls Christians to spiritual warfare. He calls us to stand. That is the main thing that you'll see repeated throughout these verses of a call for us to stand in Christ. By way of introducing this, let me share with you uh, a reading from Tolkien. In his book, The Hobbit, there are some lines that always have struck me from the very first time that I read them. The lines are contained in the first chapter of Tolkien's work, chapters titled, An Unexpected Party. As Gandalf gathers the unexpected group to go to the lonely mountain where they will encounter Smog, the great dragon. Listen to the words that Gandalf says to this unexpected party who is gathered together, these hobbits. This is what he says. That would be no good without a mighty warrior, even a hero. I tried to find one, but warriors are busy fighting one another in distant lands. And in this neighborhood, heroes are scarce, only or simply not to be found. Swords in these parts are mostly blunt, axes used for trees, shields as cradles or dish covers, and dragons are comfortably far off, and therefore legendary. Concludes the quote. Three things stand out to me in those lines. The first, Gandalf says warriors are off fighting one another. Well, sadly, this is often true of Christians, is it not? Instead of fighting the enemy, we're busy fighting one another over secondary and tertiary issues. Second, he mentions comfort. The context of Gandalf's statement is the Shire. It's a comfortable place where he says dragons are far off. Brothers and sisters, when we are comfortable and distracted, our attitude is casual. Yet, in the middle of war, your attitude should be anything but casual. The result would be lethal. Think about David himself and his great fall. What did the writer tell us? At a time when kings were off to war, yet David himself was comfortable and casual. Third, dragons, being far off, therefore, are legendary. Brothers and sisters, we have a real enemy, and we are often tempted to forget that. In the introduction to his classic, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis speaks of the two dangers concerning Satan and demons. One danger is excessive interest in them. The other is excessive disinterest. That is, disbelief or an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think Lewis is exactly right to warn us that we could be excessively overly interested in Satan and demons, but we could also be excessively uninterested or have disbelief about them altogether, which is incredibly easy to do in our modern context. Let me illustrate this. There's a big difference between paintball and a battlefield. If you're not familiar with paintball, well, that's where guns that have little air uh, canisters hooked to them shoot out balls full of paint, right? You can go somewhere and play. I wouldn't recommend it on a day as cold as today. But you go and rent those and play. My son, uh, not too long ago, got to enjoy this for the first time. And here's stories about paintball. They all came home, and there were stories of bruises. Yes, you can get bruised. And laughter, right? But stories from the battlefield are much different. Bruises and laughter, not so much. Death and terror is the result. I went and read some stories from... World War II and D-Day, and I, one line stands out to me. As the soldier says, we were dug in on the beach, and at night, with Germans within sight, trying to stay quiet, I began to cry. And my companion said, Felix, why are you crying? And he says, I can't help but cry as I think about how close we are to death. The battlefield is much different than the games and sportsmanship on the paintball field. And so as we began, the passage before us indeed tells us that we should take spiritual warfare seriously. 
Brothers and sisters, you only need to think for a little moment about the realities of the dangers of spiritual warfare. That there is a real enemy. And if you've spent much time in the church and you've cared and loved for one another, then you have actually seen the results of this enemy's work in the destruction of marriages, in the animosity and tension between parents and children, in the actual destruction and division and divisiveness that happens within the church itself. And we could go on and on and on of these real stories of hurt and pain. And so, yes, we're to take spiritual warfare seriously, yet at the same time, this passage gives us great confidence. We have a surety that no soldier in the earthly that no soldier in an earthly war can have, because Christ is our captain. And so, brothers and sisters, with these things in mind, let's turn our attention to the book of Ephesians, sixth chapter, and we'll read beginning in verse 10. This is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychius, our beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And this concludes the reading of God's word. Father, may you bless not only the reading of your word, but the preaching of it this morning. Our prayer is simple. We ask that what we have not, that you would give us, what we know not, that you would teach us, and what we are not, Father, that you would make us. And do this for Christ's sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we turn our attention to this final section of the book of Ephesians, there's a couple of things that I would like for us to do that I think would be helpful. First, I want us to think about this uh, reality of spiritual warfare in the broader biblical context. And so just like we've done the last few weeks, let me try to provide a framework for which you can view this in. Because these things can seem so foreign to us, but we have to be grounded and rooted in Scripture and to understand how God's Word has presented these themes to us and have a good biblical grounding and theological grounding. Therefore, we wouldn't be led astray by many sensational things that we might would see uh, in the broader uh, cultural context and even in our own evangelical context. And so first, let's think on this theme that we have an enemy. And this enemy is introduced to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Right? The serpent enters the garden. We're told later in Revelation 12, 9 that that serpent is the deceiver, Satan, the devil. And so there John in Revelation lets us know that that is who it is specifically uh, there in Genesis 3. So he is an enemy. He's a deceiver. He is an accuser. Yet the book of Job also in the Old Testament makes very clear that he is not an equal to God. 
If you go and you read those first few chapters of Job, you'll see that Satan himself has to get God's permission before he can even bring any kind of affliction upon Job. And when he brings affliction upon Job, there are very specific parameters which are set by God that Satan cannot cross. And so you just go and you read those chapters and you will see that noted there. Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, noted this by simply referring to Satan as God's devil, right? And so he is not God's equal. He is, God has no rival whatsoever, but he is an enemy of God. In the Gospels, if we move forward, we can see this increase in demonic activity around the ministry of Jesus. So as you go and you read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus casting demons out of people. You can see in Mark 5 with the man who has been sequestered off to the graveyard, right? Into the land of the living dead, so to speak. He's in the land of the dead. And Jesus frees him uh, from his demonic oppression. So you see this, this intensity of demonic activity happen when Jesus comes on the scene. Why? Because the king has come. And so if you think about the gospel structure, what you'll see is that Jesus is doing exactly what uh, Adam and Israel failed to do. There, when Satan entered the garden, he tempted Adam and Eve, and they did not believe God, and they believed the lies of uh, the accuser and of the deceiver, and they sinned against God. Israel will do the same thing as God makes covenant with them and they enter into the wilderness. And this is noted in the Gospels through Jesus' temptation there in Matthew's Gospel. If you'll see, Jesus is tempted not in a garden paradise, but in a desolate wilderness where he is fasting and where he has much want instead of the plenty and abundance that Adam and Eve knew. Yet Christ answers the temptations of Satan just as the way that Adam and Israel should have answered them. And they said, you say this, but thus says the Lord. God's word says this. And he trusts God, and he trusts his word, and he responds in faithfulness, and he defeats the enemy. And this is noted in the Gospels where it says that Jesus bound the strong man, and he has come, praise God, to plunder the house of the enemy and take back what is rightfully belongs to the Lord. And so here Jesus is plundering the house of the strong man who is bound by him. And J.I. Packer notes that the level of demonic intensity and manifestations during Christ's ministry was unique, having no parallel in Old Testament times or since. It was doubtless part of Satan's desperate battle for his kingdom against Christ's attack on it. Thanks be to God, we have a hero and a champion, and his name is Jesus. R.C. Sproul noted the same thing in his commentary on Mark as he said that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, literally all hell is breaking loose against him, seeking to stop the advancements of God's anointed that we read about in Psalm chapter 2. And so from the temptation of Christ to the cross, his battle with the enemy is seen clearly where he delivers the decisive blow as he lays down his life for his sheep. And if we move beyond the Gospels in the New Testament, we see multiple occasions where this victory is noted clearly by the biblical authors that Christ has decisively won. In Hebrews 2, 14 on, it speaks of Jesus defeating both death and the one who holds the power of death, the devil. In Colossians 2, 14 through 15, it speaks of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, disarming rulers and authorities and triumphing over them. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, it says that angels, that neither angels nor rulers nor powers can separate God's people from the love of Christ. And brothers and sisters, there is no reason for us to understand that it, when it says angels and rulers nor powers, that it would be speaking of heavenly angels, but it would be speaking of only those who would seek to separate us from the love of Christ, Satan and his minions. In James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 3, 9, we are instructed as Christians to resist the devil. Peter calls him a roaring lion. And this reminds us of Jesus saying that he's an enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy in John 10. In 1 John 3, 8, uh, the scriptures state that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John 4, 4, it states that he, the, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us as believers, is greater than he who is in the world. 
You need only there think of Ephesians chapter 2. The prince of the power of the air is what John is referring to. And then in Revelation 12, 10 through 11, it says that saints overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And so brothers and sisters, we must view Ephesians 6 within this broader context that there is a real enemy that we're introduced to in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 who is fighting against God and his plans, seeking to frustrate and end them all the way throughout Scripture. As just as God said that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would be at enmity with one another. So it should not surprise us whatsoever that there is an enemy that we are fighting, who is against us as God's people, yet at the same time we must be grounded in the reality that we stand in the victory of our champion, Christ our Lord. And so with these things in mind, let's turn briefly and look at the broader context of Ephesians before we move specifically to Ephesians chapter 6. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and you'll remember As we began our study here several weeks, months ago at this point, what we read. In Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 16, this is what Paul says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, Having, eye, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great mind, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, it's such a beautiful passage that we see there that as God is telling us uh, through his servant Paul that is the power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in you and I as believers and that this power has worked, verse 20, to raise him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion in every name that is named. And so again, we must stay rooted and grounded in this reality. Yet at the same time, we must understand that we are currently find ourselves situated in the time between the times. And so we are here between the first coming of Christ and waiting for his second coming. What theologians call the already, not yet. The decisive blow has been delivered to Satan. Yet... We await Christ to come and fully and finally establish his kingdom at his second coming. And so currently, we know this victory. We stand in this victory, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Yet, we will still experience the frustrations of the enemy. He's like the serpent that has had that decisive death blow, yet still strikes before finally dying. And so here we must understand, again, J.I. Packer is helpful when he says, Satan should be taken seriously, for malice and cunning make him fearsome, yet not so seriously as to provoke abject terror of him, for he is a beaten enemy. So brothers and sisters, we take him seriously, yet we rest in the victory of our Lord. Now look at Ephesians 2.3. Ephesians 2, 3, you know this great passage, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so here we walked in previously, rebellion against God, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. And there we see, but this is what God has delivered us from. And we can see this already not yet tension as we've been delivered from the enemy. Yet even in this life, look at Ephesians 4, 27, and then we'll move to our passage this morning. 
There, as Paul has instructed in Ephesians 4.1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called, this great salvation that we have, as he offers this instruction, notice what he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. And here specifically speaking about anger, right? But he tells us that there is a way for us to give an opportunity to the devil as Christians, as God's redeemed people, for him to be at work through our sin and through our unfaithfulness to the Lord as believers. And so it should be noted that give opportunity to does not equal demonic possession, by the way. I believe in 1 John 4, 4, there, it would be impossible for that to happen to a believer because greater is he who is in you, believer, than he who is in the world. Yet it is possible for you and I to give opportunity to the devil to be at work in our lives and to work through our sinful actions. So with these things in mind, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong. Be strong how? Be strong in and of yourselves? Be strong believers? No, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord is Christ's strength, is Christ's might, is not ours. It is through the cross that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them. Colossians 2, 15. And so what we need to notice is that it is in the Lord that we have our victory. Many will turn to this passage and they'll look at the armor of the Lord and they'll think immediately of the Roman soldiers. Yet some Old Testament scholars have been a great assistance to us and good would be one of those who points out the reality that much of what Paul mentions here finds its rooting in the Old Testament. And so once again, I'll be glad to send you these notes because we only have time just to briefly run through them. But the belt that girds is the Messianic king is the belt of the Messianic king in Isaiah 11.5. The helmet of salvation from, is from the divine warrior in Isaiah 59.17. The feet of gospel readiness proclaiming the Messiah's kingdom is found in Isaiah 52, 7. The shield of faith is what is promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 and is seen over and over again in the Proverbs and in the Psalms as we read this morning in Psalm chapter 3. The sword of the Spirit is found in Isaiah 49, 2. And so much of what we see here is rooted and grounded there in the Old Testament. And what Paul is telling us is that we do have a champion, that we have a warrior. It is God himself and his son, Jesus Christ, who has come to our defense and has come to be the champion who will fight for us and fight the fight and the battle that we cannot fight and that we cannot win. That he is the true and better David who is going to defeat the, the much far greater enemy, worse than Goliath, that of our own sin that enslaves us and the death that awaits us. And he gives us his spirit to live in us, 1 John 4, 4, so that we would have the spirit of Christ in us that is greater than he that is in the world. So brothers and sisters this morning, the first thing that you need to know is that when Paul calls us to action, he says, be strong. He's not saying be strong, grit it together, get it together, do your spiritual workout. He's saying stand and in the victory that is yours in Jesus Christ. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Brothers and sisters, we should be honest and be humble as this passage will call us to there in the end when it calls us to prayer. And we should recognize that we don't have much strength on our own. But in Christ, we are inconquerable because he is the conqueror. Well, notice what Paul says. He says, put on the whole armor of God. As we just briefly looked at from Isaiah and from Genesis, that this is indeed God's armor. He's given for his champion that he would be the Lord, the Lord mighty in battle who would stand and who would fight for his people. That we, verse 11, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so over and over you should just note how often Paul calls us to stand Stand, stand, stand in the Lord. Stand in your salvation. Stand in Christ Jesus and put on this armor. How can we be strong in the Lord? We are strong in the Lord as we put on the armor that he's provided for us. I want you to notice that this armor is provided for us in Christ. And I also want you to notice that as you read through this passage, that this armor just references over and over the gospel. 
It's the good news of Jesus Christ that we are to stand in and that we are to be suited up in to stand against, verse 11b, the schemes of the devil. How can we be strong? By putting on the armor. How can we stand? Standing in the Lord. What are we standing against? The many schemes of the devil. As he seeks to work against us. As he seeks to do us harm, to devour us, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And this is where we find that we are called to. The enemy is not clumsy or casual. He's crafty. He's planned. He's methodical. He's far sharper than you and I. He's been at this for a very long time. And he's made a great many fall and fall mightily. So we are to stand in the gospel. Paul emphasizes this as he continues there in verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Some of us may be tempted as we read that to laugh and say, He's already got you. As he holds you in that place where you just make a mockery of God's word and think that's no big deal. He's already winning in your life. Verse 13, he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. I love the words from the doctor. Do you know who the doctor is? This is how he's affectionately referred to. Martin Lloyd-Jones was often called the doctor. He was a medical doctor who later became a pastor there in England. But notice what he says on this call that uh, Paul just issues for us to take up the armor and that we may be able to stand. And then notice what he says, having done all, stand firm. Lloyd-Jones makes these remarks. The Christian has to put on the whole armor of God. He is filled with the strength and the power, and he has fought the battle in the evil day. Then having done all, he is tempted to take off the armor. I have gained the victory, he says. All is well. Then taking off the armor, he lies down on his bed. No, says the apostle Paul, having done all, stand. Go on standing. Do not relax. Maintain the field. You are always on duty in the Christian life. You can never relax. There is no such thing as a holiday in the spiritual realm. Brothers and sisters, how many times have you and I found ourselves falling prey to just that? Victory has been won. I have victory over this sin, this besetting sin in my life. I had a season of victory, and we let our guard down, and we take off the armor, and we relax, and the enemy is still crouching at the door and waiting for us and pounces when we least suspect. We are never off. There is no clocking out. Brothers and sisters, it has been said over and over, but the Christian life is not a cruise ship, but it's a battleship. It is not until our Lord returns that we will enjoy the full and final rest of joy in his presence. But until that time comes, we are called to be ready and to do all and continue to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The belt would serve two primary functions. It would gird up the loins. right? They would wear these flowing robes. And if there was a time, a call to action, there was time to put the belt on to get the, the robes up out of the way. So that they could move swiftly and move and be able to fight unencumbered. Yet the belt would also hold the sword. And so as we look here, Paul is calling us to be held together by not just any belt, but the belt of truth. If the belt is central to the soldier's body, then truth must be central to the Christian's life. Without truth, we are unstable, tossed to and fro by every wind and wave that comes our way, Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. Brothers and sisters, how many times have we been found ourselves there where we are not girded with truth, where we are not grounded and held to the truth of God's word, and we find ourselves tossed to and fro and, and thrown by every wind and every wave that comes our way? 
Yet Paul calls us to be held together, the center part of our uniform, to be that of truth. And he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. As we would all understand this breastplate would serve to protect the vital organs of the soldier, to protect the core of the soldier. It reminds us of Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That we should be vigilant to guard our hearts, because out of that flows everything that comes from us. I think we can think about this in two different ways. We can think about this objective righteousness and subjective righteousness. We can think about the objective righteousness or what we might call imputed righteousness, that we are righteous in Christ Jesus, that we have this standing because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we stand guarded by the righteousness of Christ. Yet at the same time, in Ephesians 4.1, Paul has called us to live lives worthy of the calling of which we've been called. And to walk in a manner worthy of this calling that we have. And so in this, we are to have what we call righteousness imparted. We're to grow in grace and to grow in holiness as believers. And so here we are being called to grow in Christ's likeness. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul, is what Peter says. Abstain from these passions of the flesh, because they wage war against your soul. Listen to what he says next. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may, so that they may speak against you, so that they may not speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, we are to pursue holiness and to live in light of the righteousness that we have been given in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The soldier's footgear would serve to support the ankles and to give him traction. They would have a cleated sole on them often. And this is a great parallel, as we mentioned a few moments ago, clearly to Isaiah 52, 7, where the Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Brothers and sisters, in this battle that we are called to stand against the enemy, what we are to do is to continue to plunder the enemy by proclaiming the gospel good news to those around us who he is seeking to devour and keep their minds darkened. This is an amazing task. That This is our offensive task is to proclaim amnesty from the king. Our task is to proclaim Christ who himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. Romans 10 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our desire is to see more and more rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. I love the way John Piper says it in his book, God is Gospel. He says that we are to make a proclamation. And he gives an example of what this proclamation from a king's herald might sound like. And he writes this, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, all rebels, insurgents, descendants, and protesters against the king. Hear this royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm. Amnesty is herefore published by, uh, by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be give, forgiven. All rebellion absolved. All dishonored pardon. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down your weapons of rebellion. Kneel in submission. Receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love. Swear fidelity to your sovereign and rise a free and happy subject of your king. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we're proclaiming when we proclaim the gospel. That there is opportunity to receive forgiveness. That there is a king who is returning, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And who will bring judgment against all sin and all rebellion. 
and for any who have not received amnesty from him. Because this is the king who first laid down his life for those who rebelled against him. And he took their punishment upon himself on the cross. And he bore the wrath that was due to them upon himself and exhausted the wrath of God. And he was raised for their justification so that they could be presented before the Father as blameless, innocent as he alone was. And so that any who would look to him in faith and repentance can receive this gift of salvation. But if they do not not, they will meet him in his wrath and in his fury as he will judge that sin himself and he will banish them forever under God's wrath in a very real place called hell. Brothers and sisters, this is weighty. This is life and death. This is eternity that hangs in the balance and that we have been called to proclaim this good news to others. And this is how we plunder the house of the enemy who wants nothing more than a hell full with himself. Yet God has sent his son to rescue those who would look to him in faith and repentance. What a grand and glorious call that we have that we can share this good news with those around us. This morning the question is this, have you received that gift? Have you received it? Have you recognized your sin? Are you proud and stubborn in that sin? Or can you say, yes, I have sinned and rebelled against a holy God? And I recognize that that God in his grace and mercy sent Christ to do that for me. And have you looked to him in faith and repentance and received that salvation so that you can be a child of God and no longer be his enemy? This is good news. This is good news. And you may say this morning, I don't really know how I feel about all of that. Friend, I can tell you that you want justice when you are wronged. And God is a God of justice And you and I and everyone in this room and in this whole world has wronged him and committed what we might call cosmic treason and he will bring judgment against it. Yet he has offered the provision of salvation and grace and mercy for any who would humbly look to him and say, I'm a sinner, save me. And for those of us who have found ourselves in Christ, we have the privilege and responsibility to proclaim that to those around us. And this morning, the greatest call is for any who have not done that to stop your rebellion. Lay down your weapons of self-righteousness. Lay down your weapons of pride and just fall at the grace and mercy of the king who laid down his life for you. Notice what he says next. In all circumstances, not in some, not in most, in all, take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Christians, we are saved by faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. Everyone in this room has faith in something. Some are are trusting in our health. Some are trusting in our abilities. Some are trusting in in the pleasures and the comforts of the world. Some are trusting in their jobs. Some are trusting in relationships. Some are trusting in their morality. Some are trusting in their bank account. Everyone places their faith in something, but it's the object of your faith that matters. And you take up the shield of faith, and our faith is in our God. And just as David cried out there in Psalm 3, the Lord is my shield about me. And this shield of faith is our Lord who shields us. And Christians, as we are saved by faith, we are to take up this shield of faith in all circumstances. And I'll give you three examples. Faith and temptation. When we're tempted, when we're tempted to sin, we're told in Romans 6, 12 through 13, let therefore Sin not reign in your mortal body and make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present them in yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and members to God as instruments for righteousness. So when you're tempted to anger, when you're tempted to gossip, when you're tempted to impatience, when you're tempted to pride, when you're tempted to gratify yourself, in that moment will we believe the true gospel of Christ, or the false gospel of this world, the gospel of self. We must remember that when we're tempted to those things, we can hold up the shield of faith and say, that's who I was, but that's not who I am anymore in Christ Jesus. And the Lord can shield us in those moments of temptation because we will stand in Christ. Faith in temptation, faith in suffering. Peter warned the exiles, 
Do not be surprised by suffering, 1 Peter 4.12. In our suffering, do we trust the Lord's goodness and love toward us? Do we really believe, Romans 8, 28 and 29, that nothing can separate us? Or are we going to believe the lies of the world? Are we going to believe, just like that in Psalm 3, the enemies that rose up against David and said, there is no salvation for you and God? For when we're tempted, that's exactly what we're tempted to do. And suffering is to doubt God's love for us. Faith in suffering, faith in temptation, faith in living. Day to day, day to day, will we use the shield of faith to seek to love and serve others? As we've talked about these last few weeks with this theme of authority, that we're called to love and serve others in all circumstances in our life. It'll take faith to remind us of of who God is and who we are in Christ to seek to go out and to serve others as he has served us in Christ. And sharing the gospel with others, do we really believe it's the power of God into salvation? Or do we think, wow, it's just something nice for us when we're here at church? Verse 17. Not only are we to take up the shield of faith in all circumstances, but we're also to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I think we can all recognize the importance of a helmet, right? Watch the NFL playoffs and imagine them doing that without helmets, right? And on and on and on, we can think of all scenarios where it's a good idea to protect what we might understand to be the most vital part of our body, the part that is most susceptible, right, and vulnerable to significant injury. Well, the enemy seeks to darken the mind, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And so you and I must keep this helmet of salvation on. We must be reminded of what we might call the gospel in three tenses. We must be reminded that you, Christian, are saved. You, Christian, are being saved. That God is working this work of salvation in you. That you are justified in Christ Jesus and you have positional sanctification in Christ Jesus, but he is making you more and more like Christ Jesus each day, transforming you from one degree of glory to another. And so often we'll be tempted, but we can join John Newton and we can say, praise be to God. I am not what I once was. I am not what I wish I I should be, but I also am not what I finally will be. And so we are being saved and we are a work in progress. And it is the helmet of salvation that will help us to keep our gospel sanity as we walk day in and day out and we fight the schemes of the devil who will come against us and seek to make us fall. Brothers and sisters, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be fully and finally one day saved in Christ Jesus when we stand before him face to face, glorified. And when we see him, we shall be him, be like him as he is. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, this is how we wield our defense. This is how we strike the enemy with the proclamation of the word. That all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man may be complete, the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The sword is used for both defensive and offensive measures. Defense, reproof, and correction to defend against the enemy. Offense, teaching, and training they'd be instructed by God's word and that we would know how it is that we are to live and to walk wisely in this world. You must know God's word in order, in order to speak it to yourself and to others. Go back to, to Matthew chapter 4 and how did Jesus respond to those temptations? It is written. It is written. It is written over and over Brothers and sisters, we cannot respond to the temptations of the enemy if we don't know God's word. But it was God's word that kept Jesus from falling into sin in the midst of those temptations. It is him living by God's word and God's word alone. So brothers and sisters, this is exactly how you and I 
should respond to temptation, but we must first know God's word if we are going to respond with God's word. His word instructs us and it builds us up and it is what the Lord uses through us to build up one another. Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to dwell richly in Christ and to, to sing God's word to one another, to build one another up in, in, in truth and in love, Ephesians chapter 4. And so it is God's word that must be central to all that we do. If you don't know God's word, not only can you not speak it to yourself, but you can't speak it to others. It is a ministry of grace and mercy to them as your fellow brothers and sisters. As we do this, we continue to be committed to God's word in our own study and fellowship together in corporate worship. We continue to, to, to dig deeper into it as we hear from God's word in a context like this of hearing it preached, as we hear from it in our Bible studies and our base groups, then we go and we search out the scriptures more and we, and we learn more of God's word and we grow in grace as we hear and are instructed by God's word, as we begin to delight in it, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, that it is better than gold, even much fine gold, and it is sweeter than, than the drippings of the honeycomb, even the best. Brothers and sisters, think about that for a moment. We do not live like this. Let's just confess this and let's say the scripture as an aspirational that we want that for our lives, that we want to cherish and love God's word even more than the best things this world has to offer, riches and the finest foods. God's word is still better still. As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but the very word of God. And we are to take up the sword of the Spirit. And then notice what Paul says. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. Friends, as he, as he brings this to a close and he, and he talks about this armor that we're to take up and put on, he says the posture is one of humility. There's nothing more humbling for a Christian than prayer. Because it is in prayer that we cry out to our Father in heaven and say, I can't help. 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 And so here we're called as Christians not to, to stand in a way pride and arrogance, but to stand in humility, to stand recognizing that this armor is God's armor and that we stand in the victory of our champion and that we are to cry out to God for help in the midst of this battle that we, are in, we find ourselves in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and that we would keep alert and notice that with all perseverance, making supplication for what? All saints. There's a corporate nature to this, that we are not individual soldiers, that we are together in this, and that we are praying for one another. And then Paul, the great apostle Paul, right, even turns to them and humbly says, and pray for me. Pray for me. Verse 19, that the words may be given in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought. And we all should be able to say amen to that prayer. That even the Apostle Paul, who was a giant of the faith, and who was a great missionary, proclaimer, who was persecuted and continued to boldly proclaim the gospel, what fueled that? That humility. Pray for me. Pray for me that I would continue to boldly proclaim it. Pray for me that I would speak it as I ought to, because it's God's gospel, not mine. And pray that I would proclaim it boldly. As he asks that twice. Brothers and sisters, the same should be for us as we think about this call to proclaim the gospel. And then you see this personal note as the Apostle Paul closes out this letter. And he says, so that you may also know how I am doing. How I am and what I'm doing. This is Tychius, our beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And you can see this connection and this personalness that goes in to Paul delivering this to the Ephesians, who he spent much time with, if you go back and read the book of Acts. And he has this endearment and this love for them. 
Brothers and sisters, if you go back and read that part of Acts, you'll see that this was a, a climate of great spiritual warfare that they found themselves in. And Paul here grounds them in biblical truth and does not leave them to worldly wisdom, to the flesh or to the devil, and tells them how to endure and how to battle. He says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that, you may, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. Love with faith from the God, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Brothers and sisters, it is absolutely appropriate. As Paul calls out peace, because Christ is our peace, as he's told them in this letter. And you know this peace because you have received his grace. And may this grace continue to be on you as his hope and his prayer. John Stott says this, No two words can summarize the message of this letter more succinctly. For peace is the sense of reconciliation with God and one another, and is the great achievement of Jesus Christ, and grace is the reason why and the means by which he did it. We know God's peace because of the grace given to us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we heed God's word. May we see that he has called us to stand firm in Christ Jesus and to put on the whole armor of God and to persevere in that and to pray to that end and to pray for one another and that we would stand firmly suited in the gospel and that we would endure until the end when Christ returns to bring his kingdom full and final and do away with the enemy once and for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it in our lives. Father, we pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. We pray that you would equip us where we need to be equipped. Father, we confess that we don't have any strength, but you've given us all the strength we need in Christ. We confess that we don't have any skills or, or any, anything to take up to defend ourselves, but you've given us all we need in Christ. Father, we confess that sometimes we are far too proud and we think that we've got it all under control. But Lord, the gospel humbles us. You call us here in your word to pray and to persevere in prayer and to stand and to be alert and to never take time off as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we've been called in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Lord, by your grace, do this more and more in us. Let us grow in grace. Let us wear this helmet of salvation that reminds us we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be fully and finally saved. And let that be our confidence. And we pray for those who don't know you, that by your grace, that even today would be the day of salvation, that you would convict and convince, and that you would draw and that the Spirit would be at work, and faith and repentance would result. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.